Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I am your host, Derek Malinzak, and this is episode 43 of the podcast. Oh, my dog uh, gave a little shout out there. I don't know if you could hear that. So welcome, guys. Hope you guys are killing it this week in college and getting uh, excited for the end of the semester. I was reading somewhere, like some people are like taking finals this week, and that just seems a little bit early for me. Uh, It's week 13 here at Rutgers, so I am going to be giving you three more episodes uh, with this one starting off the uh, last three of the series. And I have to say, I struggled a little bit uh, with a topic for today. I've been racking my brain all weekend and you know, talked to my wife about it a little bit. And I think the reason is because I feel like the podcast has just been on such a good roll lately. I've had, you know, four interviews in the last four weeks, I believe. And I wish I had another one today because I really have enjoyed doing the interviews and feel like it's brought a lot of value to the show. But just me today, guys, and uh, you're going to get a lot about me today. I'm entitling today's episode The Quitters Episode and Listening to Your Intuition. So thinking about goal achievement and how your gut instinct factors into that. We're going to talk about that today. So before we get into that, quick tip of the day. I did this myself yesterday, and I, I found I've been doing it towards the end of the semester, the last few semesters, and it's helped me a great deal with just conceptualizing what I have left. And it's very simple. Go through each of your syllabus syllabi and make a list of what you have left to accomplish for each class. So for me, I'm, t- I'm teaching three classes. So I had like one class, it's like finish grading papers and, you know, the final exam grade. For another one, it might be, you know, uh, some kind of forum assignment. This is an online class and the final exam. So I listed out all the assignments left I have to grade. And you guys should be doing it as such the assignments you have left to complete. And it should fit on one page at this point because we're getting to the end, right? If you're not too far behind, you probably only have, you know, a few assignments left, although they are very important. But just make a list of what you have left to accomplish for each class Now look at your calendar and see what begins, see what you can begin to fit in, right? Um, It's probably like a three-week time frame or window we're looking at here. So you could start to be able to look at, you know, the number of days you have and the number of tasks you have and begin to fit the pieces in to say, okay, you know, this comes before this. I have to get this done first. Let me block out the time in the next week. You know, the second, the week after this, uh, I'm going to have to factor in that I need to do this and, and begin to maybe factor this into your weekly review this upcoming week to maybe not just go into next week, but maybe two or three weeks beyond and really plan out the end of your semester as well as you can. Try and leave some leeway in there. Don't stack everything on top of one another with, with no gaps in between or, or you know ways to compensate for crisis that may come up and things you haven't considered. Uh, But just, you know, if you, I guess that's my essential suggestion is when you do your weekly review this week or or plan for next week, take into account the next couple of weeks and just project out a little further 
to make sure you have enough time for everything because here's the end of the semester right it's the last three weeks you might need to step it up more than you thought you needed to and the only way you're going to know that is if you can kind of project out and know okay you know i have this many commitments extending into next week or beyond the next week all right great all right so today i'm going to read two posts from our college that i noticed and i'm actually not going to give too much advice on them I just want to read them as sort of an introduction into today's topic. So the first one comes from, it's called College Senior Advice from LUM979116. So hi, I'm a 25-year-old college student going into my last two semesters, most likely. I have $26,000 in federal student loans and my major is music. I'm having trouble academically. I've always had trouble studying and staying on task. I currently have a 2.41 GPA. I'm trying to take retake a few classes since grades are replaced GPA-wise. My mother took out 22000 in student loans that she expects me to pay since she can't pay for them. I took a gap year to work and pay off some debts. I'm currently working as a part-time teller during the days and cashier at night. He's worried about whether he'll be able to find a job to pay off his $62,000 in student loans, whether or not experience as a bank teller or cashier will be enough to land me a job, and options to continue becoming a better musician post-graduation. Really trying to figure out what to do next. Okay, so we have somebody here uh, not yet finished with school projecting that they'll have $62,000 in debt when they get out of school. They have a, they'll have a degree in music with a low GPA and experience as a bank teller and cashier and uh, trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, I, as I said, I don't have a lot of advice for this person at this point. But here's where I will kind of say the brand building aspect of what I've been trying to, you know, get through to you guys over the last, you know, really this semester, but over the last few weeks. So this person's a musician, right? Um, I would imagine somebody that is going for a music degree in this day and age must be very passionate about music. I find it hard to imagine that this person, had, when they were choosing this degree, didn't have somebody at some point in their life question the ability to make money with this degree. So, you know, I'm all about passion, right? That's something I talk about a lot. But you have to factor in the other aspects that I've, I've, I've discussed, you know, introduced uh, the beginning episode of this semester, and I'm going to return to in a little bit. But they relate to things like value. What is the value of this music degree when you get out? What way are you going to be able to leverage this degree? And, you know, the one I, I guess I would question most is how sustainable is it going to be to get a degree like this when you're taking on this much debt? Brand building, though, if you are passionate about music, you could be doing things related to music on your own, right? So I would imagine if I were a music major and I was very passionate about music, not only would I be, you know, taking my classes and hopefully doing well, but I would also be making a lot of music 
because I'm passionate about music. That's why I would be wanting to learn about it in college, right? Uh, maybe you're interested in music instruction and that's your passion and that's why you're taking it. Well, then I would be instructing a lot of people right now because I would be so passionate about it and that would be sort of the way I would try to be make money. Or maybe I would be making videos, instructional videos to teach people about music. Uh, and so I would be doing this stuff while still in college, kind of what myself and Dr. Jubinville had talked about in our podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Because when you get out, yeah, you'll have this music degree, and that may or may not be helpful in your, your search for a job. But you would also have, say, a portfolio or a website of all of your, your musical endeavors, your, your videos, your songs, your lyrics, whatever it is related to music that you were particularly passionate about. Playing music, writing music, instructing people how to play music, whatever. So that when you did try and get a job, you, you not only would have that music degree to fall back on, uh, because it is, you know, this day and age that we've talked about it, the bachelor's is sort of replacing the high school diploma in a sense, um, or in some cases the associate's degree is replacing the high school diploma. Um, you know, a college degree is a necessity in a lot of fields still. I don't know if it'll always be that way, but I don't, and I don't know how it is in the music field, but I would imagine, um, you know, music would be important in the music field. So that would be what I would have been trying to do had I chosen to take this path of uh, pursuing a music degree, knowing that I'd be taking on a lot of debt. I would be making sure I was very passionate about music, but also factoring in these other these other aspects. You know, what value will it bring me? Um, you know, is this a sustainable way to earn a living? And how might I leverage this into uh, future successes later on? All right, so that is the first one. And then the second one comes from James Holliday, third year. So we had two people about to enter their senior year. Third year and still no idea what I want to study. <clears throat> Hi, all. I'm here seeking some advice slash hoping to bout my indecisiveness may help others not really sure what that means. I came to my university declared as a psychology major as that seemed to be what a lot of people did. I quickly found that 99% of psychology bored me, but found that neuroscience was pretty cool, so I jumped headfirst into that my second semester. Along the way, I rediscovered passions for mathematics and computer science, but I thought I'd never actually pursue them and kept them as minors. Fast forward to recently, and I was almost set to graduate a year early with my neuroscience degree, with a year of research, and a publication. But I found myself unhappy with just about everything I had been preparing for. I panicked about it last semester, so I added computer science major to hold off for a bit and have a backup plan. To make matters worse, I've become mostly apathetic towards finishing the last couple of classes for my neuro degree, and I'm far more attracted to adding math as a major and making neuro a minor to be done with it. I've yet to decide on this, but I'm taking this last course that could keep me interested in the major next semester. I really don't know what I'm doing at this point. It just seems like I've wasted all this time and money on this degree, and I'm only coming away with a feeling of regret. I prefer not being an undergrad forever, so anyone have any advice? Sorry if the solution seems obvious. I'm just not sure what I should do. Okay. 
So, person asks in follow-up, have you looked into careers for your options? What do you see for yourself in the long term? If you see yourself in a neuroscience career, remember your classes are preparing you for that career and you may want and that may make you feel less apathetic. Good good advice. James replies, I've basically only thought as far as graduate school, which I've determined I want to go to regardless of whichever of the three I decide on. And he talks a little bit more about what he doesn't like about his neuroscience major. Okay. So this one sort of relates to having a plan, right? When I was going into college, I had a shitty plan, but I had a plan, right? My mom thought I talked about this story. My mom thought I uh, would be a good physician's assistant, so I pursued that. And that was sort of my plan until I figured out I didn't have a passion for biology classes and tried to, you know, circle back on the fly and ended up switching to English and, and everything worked out actually for me. Um, I did not go into my English degree thinking about the value it would bring or the leverage I'd be able to use or how sustainable it would be. I did get some of the things that I get. I bet that person with the music major uh, would be getting is like, uh, what are you really going to do with an English degree? I got that. And I thought I would teach. So I did have an answer for that. And I think the answer you know, it was somewhat realistic. You know, there are a lot of teachers you know, and there's actually apparently a teaching shortage, I just heard. And you can get, you know, at least a start in teaching with an English degree. That might be a precursor to some kind of uh, teaching certificate. Um, but I was comfortable that it was at least a, a viable option, if not, you know, the most well thought out one. So... The thing that I struggle with besides the fact, okay, a lot of people at 18 don't have a plan of what they want to do. This guy or gal, I think it's a guy, his name is James, uh, you know, had a plan, got really close to finishing it. I mean, to have finished, be able to have finished a year early with a year of research at a publication would have been pretty sweet. Even if... I had started to question my passion for neuroscience or whatever my degree was at that point. I think the trade-off would have been, at least in my mind, worth it. You know, the ability to finish a year early, that's 25% if it's a four-year degree and you finish in three years, 25% less money you're going to spend or loans you're going to take out. So there's certainly a lot of value in that. Um, and you start your, you get to start your career a year early, so you have that much more earning potential. So that's you know something probably a lot of people don't think about, but some of the kinds of things I think about. So you know, okay, he didn't do it. He, you know, I'm all for passion, right? So he discovered a passion for math and computer science, and you know now he's stuck because I think he doesn't know what to do. And the thing that I think that strikes me the most about this is he has no plan of how he wants to finish his undergrad degree, yet he's determined he wants to go to grad school regardless of what he decides on. So he's got that plan in place, but no plan to actually get to that plan. See what I'm saying? That's, I guess, the, the issue that I have and, and what I would probably try and and steer this person towards is like the priority here is what to do with grad school and again 
you know, thinking about your career passions and, and what you like is probably a good place to start in order to have a roadmap to kind of at least plan out the last year here and try and finish. So, you know, I, I don't, I didn't respond to these people because I don't think a lot of the, the advice I would have would be very helpful to them in, in particular, but I think it could be helpful for you guys so as not to run into some of the same problems that these students are running into. And I imagine some people are probably listening to these uh, posts and are like, wow, <laughs> I could have written that freaking post, right? So returning to this idea that I discussed back in episode 30, uh, 30 I think, um, PVLAS, Passion, Value, Leverage, Accountability, and Sustainability. I discussed these. It's something I've sort of you know, trying to been working out in my mind over the last year as a way to sort of evaluate uh, and help with the decision-making process. And this is conscious decision-making, right? You know, these are very, you know, specific things that are easy to conceptualize and think about. So again, let's look at this guy with, you know, this idea of finishing a year early, right? Um, The passion may not be there for neuroscience, as much as it was, but it was there at some point. So there's some passion, but maybe waning passion, what that person described in that last uh, post on Reddit. The value of a neuroscience degree, I, I don't know, but I would imagine is pretty high. You would potentially be able to leverage that degree as well as the research and publication that the person described into a, the, uh, into a job. May not be the job you like, But who gets out of college and the first job that they take is a job that they freaking love? I mean, that is something to kind of clarify. When you get out of college, I don't know if the expectation should be that you're going to land the dream job. You might land the entry-level job that's going to put you on the path to the dream job. But, you know, I hate to say it, but you're not entitled to, you know the job of your dreams just at a college if you haven't put in the hard work necessary to get there. So it might seem a bit obvious to some, but I felt like I had to say it. Um, So these are ways to consciously decide, you know, okay, how am I going to set up my accountability to finish college? You know, we talked a lot about that over the last, over this uh, semester, the sustainability, you know, again, what I question in the math, I mean, in the music major uh, person might be a little bit more sustainable to forge a neuroscience degree. So, you know, I think it's fairly easy and straightforward to be able to evaluate, you know, decision-making processes through a, a large variety of constructs, whether it be, you know, the ones I've highlighted here, passion, value, leverage, accountability, sustainability, or whatever other ones you choose, um, you know, cost, you know, whatever, location, there's lots of different factors you can employ. What I want to spend the rest of the podcast talking about is your gut intuition and the subconscious decision making that goes on and how that can be equally as important as the conscious decision making, yet so universally neglected by people in a lot of cases. I really am an intuitive person, I think. I really believe in intuition. I think that I 
feel like I kind of have the intuitive gift to be able to sense things a little bit better than others. Um, I did do some reading on the science behind intuition prior to kind of you know getting ready for this episode. And I do want to say, like, I don't have, I'm not an expert at all in this. You know, I know what I know about intuition because I have an intuitive sense about it. <laughs> kind of weird. Um, but I don't have a lot of research to back up what I'm going to be talking about today. There's some out there, as I was reading and preparing, that, you know, hints at this idea that our gut reactions and intuition and feelings are stronger and should be listened to probably more than they are. Uh, And it did also say that some people's intuitions should not be trusted as much. Um, And they gave the example of somebody, you know, subconscious is sort of like a fight or flight, right? If you have this feeling like something's not right, your body is sensing like, ah, you get into this, like, I should get out of here type of sense, or I might need to fight it off. And being, having that subconscious thought process is instinctual in us, right? It's guided us as a human population through thousands of years and has helped us as a species not die off, right? So it's very important. And it talked about how women actually have a a slightly higher developed intuitive sense due to child rearing and the need to be able to sense their children's needs and, uh, you know, potential harm better than males. And as such, they've developed a slightly better sense than males with this. So if somebody has developed and come from a place of trauma, right, if somebody was like abused growing up, they may, their fight or flight senses might be a little skewed because that's not natural development, right? And so somebody that constantly is fearing, you know, abuse or trauma might not have a as well-developed intuitive sense, right? Their intuition might jump to this feeling of, ah, I need to get out of here because I had trauma in the past and it was very painful and it's your body trying to avoid that pain. But if you, I think if you have a sort of well-grounded intuition that is not, you know, rooted in trauma, it could be extremely powerful. So I'm going to give you examples of that today and illustrate how intuition and this feeling like, "Ah, I don't know if this is right for me or I do know this is right for me is really important when it comes to, you know, goal setting and success. And a lot of times I think it's not listened to as much in college because we are relying on external things to guide our decision making, right? What our parents think we should do, what our guidance counselor thinks we should do, our friends, or what everybody else is around us is doing, and therefore what we expect ourselves to do based on all of these external forces. I don't know if there's a lot of intuitive decision making going on at the college level. And I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about that to illustrate this idea that everybody may be telling you that this is a good decision, whatever the decision is. And if you don't know in your heart of hearts that it's the right thing, if you feel, if you sense intuitively it's not the right decision, it's okay to quit. You know, it's okay based on, you know, a well-developed intuitive sense to 
you know, say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Or, you know what, this isn't going to work out for me, but I've learned something from it. I'm going to go in this other direction now. I don't think that people give others the permission to quit as much as they need to. You know, there's this idea in our society that quitters are losers, unless you're quitting like drugs, right? Um, And that is not true. You know, why we talked about it, sunk cost theory, a few episodes ago. It was probably closer to like 10 episodes ago. And that's the idea that people are reluctant to quit because they feel like they've sunk so much into you know, a decision that, you know, to quit would be, would to make it even, be even worse, but in fact compounds the, the bad decision that you made. So let me give you some examples from my own life, starting from when I was young and how I sort of knew I had this stronger than normal intuitive sense and how it's helped me, both successes and failures. Um, the first one goes back really young. I was uh, in elementary school. I was probably in first or second grade, so I don't know, what is that, seven years old at the time? And my bus stop was right on the corner of my house. So my house was on the corner of a suburban suburban street, and the bus stop where the bus picked me up to bring me to elementary school was right on my corner. So I didn't have far to walk. It was nice. And there was a, a number of other kids that used that same bus stop. This particular day, I happened to be the first one out on the bus stop. And, you know, I walked out there, and I was standing and it was a T-stop. It wasn't like a, a four-way stop. It was a T-stop. And I was standing on the corner, and it was quiet, you know, 7, 7.30 in the morning. And there was a car driving down the street towards me. And so it was either going to go past me, you know, towards my right and go straight, or it was going to turn right and, you know, go around the corner and pass me in front of me. So the way I was standing, I was watching the car come towards me. And my intuition told me to run away. And so that probably seems odd, right? I see cars drive towards me all the time, right? Especially, you know, on that bus stop. And it's a small suburban street, you know, 25 mile an hour speed limit. And I don't know what it was about this car, but looking at the car, I knew something wasn't right about the car and that I should run. So I ran. I ran up my my lawn towards the front door of my house and as I did that the car was driving faster than it should have been tried to take the corner um, took the corner too widely went up on the curb ran over the lawn smashed into my fence and drove away you know got back on the street and drove away ran right over where I was standing I would have most assuredly been dead had I actually been standing where I was, where the bus stop was. And so I don't know, we, I don't know what it was about that car or, or what it was in my mind that day that said run away or why I was the only one on the bus stop. But there's something about that moment in my mind that just sticks out to me that's like, you know, I knew something and I don't know if everyone would have been paying attention to the car like I was that day or just had as strong a sense as I had. I was seven years old. I mean, it wasn't something I was taught at all at that point. So the next thing I'm gonna talk about is a little further along. I was an adolescent. I I may have talked about this last semester, but I was uh, taking, I was in a competitive swim club through my school and it was hard. You know, I I, I was a good swimmer because I had a pool in my backyard 
but this was swimming competitively, like laps, right? And I had done all the swimming lessons up through, you know, elementary school into junior high. And then, you know, it was into competitive swimming. So I was like, yeah, I'd like to try this. The, the high school where the pool was was right around the block from my house. So it was easy to get to. And so I began swimming, you know, in the wintertime because I was, you know, I think it was coming off the summer and I was into it. And it was hard. You know, it was a lot of practice. You know, then we had the swim meets on the weekend. And in the beginning, I was like, oh, you know, I don't really know if I like it, but I kept doing it and I got better at it. And, you know, it's it's this idea, right? In the beginning, when you're bad at something, and you practice. Practice is really boring and it sucks and it's not fun. But if you stick with it, practice actually becomes interesting and fun. But there's a learning curve and you have to, like, push yourself to get past that learning curve, right? So I pushed myself and I got good. And I got so good that they wanted to move me up into the next higher level of kids, um, you know, stronger swimmers. So I was in that. And all of a sudden, again, I was the bottom fish in this, you know, stronger class. And I just looked ahead. And I was like, there's just going to be more more practices, more meets. And I looked at myself and I'm like, do I really like this? <laughs> and it turned out I realized about myself, I like swimming. But I like swimming for fun. I don't really like competitive swimming. <laughs> And so as like an eighth grader, I was now had to tell my parents that I didn't want to do this anymore. And it was a really hard thing to do because they saw how hard I had worked and they saw the success I had had in moving up that they couldn't believe that I would want to quit now. You know, it's like you put in the work, you got past the learning curve. You know, it's like if I had started taking guitar lessons and, you know, you go through those awful, awkward periods of being terrible at the guitar. And then one day you just kind of like the muscle memory kicks in. It's like, ah, and you, you learn some base fundamentals and it just empowers you to be able to do so much more that now that now you're eager to be able to use your new skills and it leads to more skills. So I had gotten to that point and my parents just couldn't believe it. it's like you, you, you got through the hard part. And I, I, my answer to them was like, yeah, I know, but I saw what's next <laughs> And I just don't want to do it. And I just had learned something about myself. And this was my first experience with this idea that quitting was is hard to do because of the expectations on you. But it's okay. You know, I survived. Um, and I, as a result, I continue to enjoy swimming. I don't dislike it. Now, maybe I had would have gone on to become a great fucking swimmer. <laughs> but I don't think I would have enjoyed it. So um, that sort of relates to this idea that there's there's dignity in quitting when you when you know in your heart that it's not the right thing for you despite what other people tell you i had the opportunity to take and i'm going to link to a description of this in the show notes today the myers briggs type indicator it's a personality test that you take and they then uh sort of grade you on four scales and one of them is um an intuition scale and it is intuition on one side, and I believe perception, no, th feeling, thinking, feeling, introvert, extrovert, judging of perception, uh, thinking, and intuition. I don't know what it is. Anyway, I don't know what the, the opposite of intuition is, but... When I did it, I was sort of in the middle on all the other scales. Like I was, you know, about the same introvert versus extrovert or, you know, thinking versus feeling. I was like right in the middle. But I was like off the charts intuit intuitive. 
and none of the other thing, whatever that is. I'll put it in the show notes. And I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. And the the facilitator of the training, because we had done the Myers-Briggs survey ahead of time, and then we, you know, got our results, and then the training was like interpreting these results. It was a, uh, it was a work uh, team building event. So it was we were trying to learn how to work better as a unit. It was in the mental health field, so I was like learning about my coworkers and how to get better results out of our our team. And so we discussed, you know, whatever the first uh, set of measures was, and then we got into the intuition one. And I raised my hand because what he had done the first time was kind of break people up. It's like, okay, everyone that was high on the introvert scale, you know, go over here. We did this extrovert. I mean, we did this exercise. And whoever was high on the extrovert scale, you know, go off. So we were about to break up into the intuitive and non-intuitive groups. And I raised my hand to the instructor. And I was like, I think I'm intuitive enough to know who the other intuitive people in my, my work group were. And he was like, Oh, really? Okay. You know, who do you think it was? And so I just started naming the people that I thought were intuitive. And it turned out I was right on just about every single one. And that sort of amazed me. I was like, I was intuitive enough to pick out the other intuitive people in my group. This wasn't family. This was like work people. So I knew them, but I didn't know them. And that was another clue that I sort of had this heightened sense of being able to intuitively know and sense what is, is right for me and what isn't. So I think the Myers-Briggs type indicator is a really super interesting tool. And I would encourage you guys to check it out. Try it out. Uh, see where you rate on the scales. And you're going to get a four-factor an- analysis. So for me, I was an INTJ. Introvert, intuitive, thinking, judging. And those are the the four symbols. So there's like 16 different combinations, I believe. And you can kind of look at your your combination and see what it says about you. And it's really often pretty um, spot on accurate. It's pretty amazing. So Myers-Briggs, cool, cool little tool. So let's fast forward a little bit further. And the relationship I was in prior to meeting my wife, my you know, now wife, I was in a relationship with this, uh, with this woman for a little over a year. And, you know, on the surface, it was really awesome. You know, we, we had a lot of fun and she was really cool, but I knew I had this intuitive sense in my mind the whole time we were together that it was not the right person for me. And I'm sure there's other people that are out there in my shoes that, you know, everything's fun and, you know, there's nothing bad about the relationship, but you just know, you sense, it's like, eh, this isn't the one, right? And in some cases, it's fine to just, you know, you you know, and the other person knows this isn't serious, we're just having fun. Um, that's cool. But that was not the case here. I think that we both at least had talked about more serious you know, plans, and then my intuition would lead me to think, you know, we were headed. And so that was a bad move on my part. And, you know, it was a bad scene. You know, she had problems, and I certainly had problems. I was at the worst of my alcoholism. So, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of blame to go around. But I remember getting out of that relationship, and I was the one that ended it, and thinking to myself, I'm so glad I made this decision. This was a really, really hard decision. It was much easier to just stay in the relationship. 
you know, because it was easy. But the intuition became so strong that I knew I needed to take the opportunity when it arose to say, this isn't working and really hold my ground. And, you know, so I guess in a sense, you might consider that relationship a failure, right? Um, We were together for a while. It didn't work out. There was a lot of pain at the end on both sides. I, I was at fault. She was at fault. It sucked. But I'll tell you something, man, that I learned so much about myself and what I need in a relationship from that relationship that I don't know if I would have had the intuitive sense when I met my wife that this is right. This is exactly what I need if I hadn't had that bad experience, because actually my my relationships up until that point had been, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't actually succeeded in that. I hadn't found the one, but they've been really fulfilling relationships, you know, long-term relationships, um, ones where I was still friends with the person after. And I think that that is a true sign of a a really good relationship. You know, two in particular ex-girlfriends I have are still really good friends of mine to this day. And I don't know if a lot of people can say the same thing. And I think that's a testament to the fact that, you know, they were good relationships and, and solid and we got, we both got a lot out of it. Just wasn't, we weren't the right ones for each other. This other relationship, we weren't the ones and there was a lot, you know, there was some negative stuff that happened and I knew in my, my mind I, I should get out. And I, you know, it just so happened that the right time came up when it did and I, I realized that I, you know, I needed to fail in that sense to kind of learn enough about myself to know what my goals would be for the future and that when I did meet somebody, what I would, what I did value because it wasn't there in the, in the previous relationship. Um, so, you know, it's this idea that you just know, and there's not, I don't even know how the science would be able to measure that, Right. In the articles I discuss, I read preparing, they talked about uh, the example that was commonly cited was like buying a home, you know, or any kind of large purchase. You know, there's so much apprehension when you, when you, you know, when there's so much money involved, right? And I haven't bought a home, so I can't uh, speak to this, but I can definitely relate to other things, right? We, I bought a car last year, brand new car, expensive, right? Um, And we, you know, in car shopping, you just, you know, you get into the car and, you know, you've done your research on, you know, the cost efficiency, you know, the fuel efficiency and the features and what you need and the price and all that. But there's nothing to measure when you get behind the wheel and just sit there and feel like, hmm, this feels like it fits, right? Versus when you get into a car, you're like, yeah, I'm not feeling this one. When you are house shopping and you've looked at 20 houses and none of them have been the one and then you walk into the 21st house and you just look around and you're like yeah this one feels right my intuition is telling me this is is the right house you know the the research the little bit that's out there is saying like this is a very powerful sense and you should listen to it the the sixth sense that we have yet to really um, untap so you know, that's the examples that I saw commonly referenced in the articles that discuss this. Um, when I think about, you know, 
where your intuition takes you when you fail, right? So recently I've had a few things happen where I thought I was on the right track. My intuition was telling me to go somewhere and then I realized it wasn't the right place. And the learning experience has been extremely powerful, right? So I've been into gardening the last few summers. This will be our third summer coming up that we'll have our little own garden in our community garden area near our house. And so that has been a huge learning experience. I was always sort of into gardening. My dad had a garden, but I, I never did a lot of gardening. Um, I did some, so that's why I was interested in it. And the first summer, we, my wife and I bit off way more than we could chew. We had like double the amount of space than we really could manage. And it was just a mess. Like one, one patch just kind of went to shit and we managed the best we could with the other one. So our first month of, uh, our first year of learning experience was like, don't bite off more than you could chew. So we, our second year, last year, we set up like one plot, you know, really well took care of it. So improved a lot in that area, um, but screwed up in other areas, like planted too much too close together and ended up, you know, with shitty yields. And, you know, the failures that I had were important in that I could observe other people and the way they were making their gardens and say, okay, that looks like a good idea. That that sounds like what other people have told me. But I believe in my mind I could do it this way. <laughs> and my example is I've tried to plant tomatoes too close together thinking I could get a lot more plants into my garden than everybody else. And what I learned was that when you do that, none of the plants themselves actually can stretch out and you end up getting less yield even though you have more plants. I read this online in so many places, but in my mind, I thought I was special, right? Like I could make the magical tomato plants do what everybody else couldn't. And that failure that I had at the end of the season where I was like, shit, I really, that really is true. <laughs> That's what I needed to teach me, you know what, next year going in or this upcoming summer, I'm going to do it exactly as I've seen and described on the seed packets and other people in the garden. And I'm going to hell of a hell of a lot of tomatoes this year. Um, with sobriety, you know, everybody told me you are an alcoholic. You cannot drink in moderation. I didn't believe it. I had this idea that I could be different and I was wrong, but I needed to fail for myself. I needed, I couldn't just observe. I had to experience it. And some people need that too. And that's why I can understand going into college and being like, this is for me. I know this is for me. And then two semesters in being like, mm, this is not for me. <laughs> it's what you do then that, you know, really can become somewhat life altering, right? Do you keep going even though you know it's not for you? Um, do you cut your losses early and get out when you can and, and sort of minimize, you know, you, you, you learn the lesson, but you minimize the consequences? I don't know. These questions are, are uniquely personal. And so I don't have the specific advice. But I guess what the advice I have is, is, is listen to your gut and don't underestimate it, especially when it's coming from that well-meaning place, that place where you know it's somewhat well-developed. It wasn't, you know, rooted in, in this heightened fight or flight sensations that might come along with something like trauma. Um, it's knowing yourself. And I feel like this is something that I've really been able to make great strides in in the last couple of years. And something that I got a lot out of in the, the last Gary Vanderchuk book that I had read, the Ask Gary V book, the one that just came out 
that I haven't talked about on this uh, podcast. I talked about his first book. And that one prompted me, finishing that one prompted me to read his, his most recent book. And the thing I took out away the most from it was how much he talked about self-awareness and how important it is that he knows himself in knowing how to create a good business. And that is just so, you know, it's so obvious to me, but it's so important and can't be stressed enough. You know, knowing what you're good at and knowing what you like and knowing what you fucking hate is worth its weight in gold. So recently I've been, you know, working on my own goal, right? My online course that I'm working on. And I have been running into some things that I'm just not, you know, that skilled with, right? So I can create a PowerPoint, you know, every teacher can at some point, at some level, but I don't know like advanced PowerPoint shit. And my PowerPoint looked kind of basic, but I was like, all right, I was actually going for basic. And so in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, it'd be nice if I sort of branded this and, you know, sort of had the logo embedded. And then I thought about some other things that might look good. So I I reached out on a freelance site and I hired somebody to sort of spruce up and make my PowerPoint look professional. And I was really unsure going in if this was like a necessary task, if it was like, I don't really need to do this, but I think that, you know, thinking 80-20, I think this is one of those 20% things that will yield 80% of the results. And man, when I got the results, I was so blown away. I was like, this looks so much better. I could not believe, you know, how good a decision that was. That I started thinking, you know, man, outsourcing is great, right? I'm going to outsource everything that I'm not good at or that I hate, right? So I make my screencast videos for my course and now I have to edit them. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to edit. I'm not good at editing. Um, hey, let me hire somebody, right? So I this past weekend, uh, past week actually, I've been reaching out trying to hire somebody to edit these videos. And I've been having more trouble than I expected, right? There's a million editors out there. And for some reason I'm having trouble, right? So I'm going back and forth with this editor and he wasn't giving me what I wanted. And at the end of it, I was like, you know what, let me just start looking into this myself. And an hour later and, you know, 17 YouTube videos, I figured out how to do all the fucking editing myself (laughs) and wrote to the person and sort of canceled the job because he wasn't delivering what I needed. And I was like, you know, I ended up actually teaching myself everything I needed to know. Uh, And so I'm going to go that route. And he was like, you know, he was fine with it. And at the end of it, at the end of the night last night, because this all happened last night, I was like, you know, this was a really important lesson. I thought that I was on the right track with this, like, I'm going to outsource and, you know, I'm not going to do the things I don't want to do or I don't like to do. But when I ran into this problem, uh, I ended up teaching myself the skill. And instead of investing, it was going to be like, you know, hundreds of dollars. Uh, instead of investing money, what I did was invest in myself. And I invested time in this case, you know, YouTube's free. It's why it's amazing into watching, you know, I invested an hour of time. And in, in this case, I ended up learning a skill that's going to serve me throughout my career. You know, how to edit screencast videos is one of those things that I think as an instructor is only going to, you know, improve my marketability, you know, my human capital which maybe I'll do an episode on. Um, It's a really interesting topic. And I realized, I was like, you know, outsourcing isn't the be-all, end-all. 
it's definitely great for certain things, but there are certain things where the 80-20 comes into play and it's like, you know what, this would actually be worth investing time and learning how to do rather than um, relying on somebody else to do. Uh, the stock market. I've been into the stock market recently. It's been my passion for the last year or so is to kind of learn about how the economy works. And I've sort of dipped my feet into it, right? I've I opened a brokerage account and, you know, I have a little bit of money in there and I've done a lot of reading, right? I read every day about the stock market and I, I've observed a ton and I listen to podcasts and I've, I've gained a lot of knowledge in the last year. It cannot prepare you for actually experiencing what it's like to purchase stocks in the stock market and then see if you make money or not. When you have skin in the game, it just it heightens it, right? It's why gambling is such an, a, you know such a big deal for people, right? If you try and play poker for no money, it's like, eh, it's fun. The second you throw some money or some you know some stakes into the game, some real stakes, it becomes a lot more interesting. And with the stock market, I, I took the plunge recently and, and made some investments and, you know, they didn't turn out exactly as I liked. I didn't, you know, I didn't lose my shirt or anything, but I was talking with my brother about it afterwards and I'm like, I really needed to do it. It wasn't, there no amount of observation could have prepared me for the actual shit that I learned when I experienced what it was like to lose a little bit of money. That learning experience was much more powerful and I realize about myself, my self-awareness, that I need to experience stuff. I don't trust my observations enough. You know, I look at something, I'm like, I could do that or I'll like that. But then I actually need to experience it to confirm that. And I, I suspect a lot of people are the same way. But this self-awareness about myself has just been so huge in helping me avoid disasters uh, and just be a little bit more productive and, and achieve my goals a little closer, uh, a little bit more in the time frames that I would like to be. So that was a lot today. You got a lot of Derek. Uh, you got a lot of stories with Derek. Um, and I hope that, th that this has been cohesive. You know, I, as I said, I struggled a little bit with the topic for today and, and then it snowballed in the last 24 hours. I was like, okay, I had this idea about talking about, you know, the, the dignity in quitting and in failure. Um, and it's kind of snowballed into this idea of what and how important intuition is. So I hope I've been able to make that link and connect it for you. You know, as far as the, the Reddit uh, posts and, and sort of how I introduced it, you know, the thing that I would just say again to those, and I bring it back to Stephen Covey and the seven habits of highly effective people. I brought up one habit last week, um, and that was seek first to understand, then to be understood. The habit that I would think about for today and for those individuals that are struggling right now with knowing what path to take is, you know, in a sense, it's hindsight advice. So maybe it's just good advice for you for the future is to kind of begin with the end in mind. And that's another one of his seven habits to know where you want to end up before you go to college. And that's hard, right? You may think you know where you want to be, go to college and realize, okay, I needed to experience this to realize this is not where I want to be. And then how do you gracefully exit or how do you transition? And sometimes it's a transition and you could sort of navigate that. That's how I was able to get out of community mental health and into academia. I didn't just say one day I quit and, you know, pick up and get another job. That would have been really hard for me to do. I transitioned. So I sort of, I knew where I wanted to end up 
and so I started doing the things that would sort of get me there. I started doing guest lectures and, you know, reaching out to professors and sort of just making sure that they remembered my name so that when a position did open up, as it did, uh, they I was the one that they, they called. So begin with the end in mind, people. So with that, uh, your home exercise this week is sort of odd. Um, this, there's going to be a disclaimer with this one, right? So I'm not telling you to quit everything in your life, but quit something you know in your heart you need to quit. If you can't do it today, and there may be a lot of you know logistical reasons, then write it down. Write down what you want to quit and why, and store it somewhere safe to return to later. So I don't want emails from you guys that's like, oh, I quit school because you told me to. No, I'm not telling you to quit school. I'm telling you to quit something in your heart you know you need to quit. That might be a bad relationship. That might be something related to substance abuse uh, or an unhealthy lifestyle. It might be school. It's not Derek telling you to quit school. It's Derek giving you permission to know that it's okay to quit things. And that, you know, there's this idea that society doesn't like quitters, that quitters are losers. Well, I'm here to tell you, I've quit a lot of shit in my life. And I'm not a loser. And I don't think you guys are either. So, with that, kick ass this week, guys. I'll come back to you next week with another awesome episode, hopefully. And have a great week. Peace.